This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Thank you for joining us. We've got a very exciting opportunity this morning. I get to interview Dr. William Lane Craig, and I can give you an introduction to him, but I'd rather interview him through the introduction. And so uh, would you join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Craig? Please have a seat. I've been so excited to have this chance. Now, I thought we'd start this dialogue with just some background so people get to know you. Uh, William Lane Craig, is that what you were called growing up? No, I was Billy. Billy. To my folks, and uh, to some Willie. <laughs> <laughs> where did you grow up? Peoria, Illinois, is where I was born, and then uh, raised in a little town on the Mississippi River called Keokuk, Iowa. Really? Mm -hmm. Mark Twain country. So what did your parents do? What, what, what kind of family? My father was a railroad executive. He worked on the TP&W Railroad, which is a spur of the Santa Fe, uh, across Illinois with its uh, terminal offices in Keokuk. And so my dad was a trainman, and uh, some of my boyhood was spent uh, on the trains and seeing how the rails work and so forth. It was a, a great culture, if you know what I mean. Oh, I do know what you mean. My dad worked for the Texas and Pacific Railroad, which oh. became the Missouri Pacific, which became the Union Pacific. Yes. So uh, the railroad put me through college. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, fascinating. Now, were you an only child or, or did you have siblings? I have an older sister and a younger brother. And so you're, you, okay, I'm middle child syndrome uh, as well. I'm the middle child uh, in our family, though we don't often count my little sister. Um, <laughs> I just say that jokingly. I adore her. Um, uh, my little sister and my big sister are the real accomplished people in our family. I just sort of roll along between them. Um, but uh, uh, where did you find your faith? Where, I mean, did you grow up in a Christian home? What? I did not, although it was a good and loving home. But uh, when I became a teenager, I began to ask the big questions in life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And in the search for answers, I began to attend a large church in our local community all on my own, just looking for answers. Wow. But unfortunately, what I found was a social country club where the dues were a dollar a week in the offering plate, and the other high school students who pretended to be such good Christians on Sunday lived for their real God the rest of the week, which was popularity, and they would do anything uh, for that God. And this deeply troubled me because I thought, uh, externally at least, I'm leading a more moral life than they are, but I feel so empty inside. They must be just as empty as I am, but they're all putting up a false front, pretending to be something they're not. And so I began to become very angry and bitter about the institutional church for the hypocrisy that I saw there. And soon this attitude spread toward people in general. Everybody, I said, is a hypocrite. They're all holding up plastic masks, and the real person is cowering down inside, afraid to come out and be real. And so I began 
to be very hateful and resentful toward people in general. Uh, I was on my way, frankly, toward becoming a very alienated young man. Um, but in moments of introspection and honesty, as I looked into my own heart, I realized that deep down I really did want to be loved and to love others. And I realized in that moment I was just as much a hypocrite as they were. Mm. Because here I was pretending not to need people and putting on this brave face when down inside I knew I really did. And so that anger turned in on myself for my own hypocrisy and phoniness. And I don't know if you understand what this is like, but this kind of inner anger just eats away at your insides day after day, making every day miserable, another day to get through. And I remember one day I was feeling particularly crummy, and I walked into my high school German class and sat down behind a girl who is one of these types, you know, that is always so happy, it just makes you <laughs> sick. And I tapped her on the shoulder, and she turned around and I said, Sandy, what are you always so happy about anyway? And she said, it's because I'm saved. And I said, you're what? And she said, I know Jesus Christ is my personal savior. And I said, well, I go to church. And she said, that's not enough, Bill. You've got to have him really living in your heart. And I said, well, what would you want to do a thing like that for? <laughs> and she said, because he loves you, Bill. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. Here she said, there was someone who really loved me. And who was it but the God of the universe? And that thought just staggered me to think that the God of the universe could love me. Bill Craig, that worm down there on that speck of dust called the planet Earth. And, and that just lit a fire within me. I went home that night and found a New Testament that had been given to me by the Gideons when they visited our class in the fifth grade. And for the first time, I opened it and began to read. And as I read, I was absolutely captivated by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, there was a wisdom about his teaching that I'd never encountered before. And there was an authenticity about his life that wasn't characteristic of those people in the local church I was going to. And I knew then I couldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, to make a long story short, uh, over the next six months, I went through the most intense period of soul searching I have ever been through. And at the end of those six months, I just yielded my life to Christ and cried out all the anger and the bitterness that had been welling up inside me. And as I did so, I felt this tremendous infusion of joy, like a balloon being blown up and blown up until it was ready to burst. And I rushed outside. It was a warm uh, Midwestern September evening. And as I looked up at the sky, I could see the Milky Way from horizon to horizon. And I thought, God, I've come to know God. And that just uh, changed my entire life. You see, I thought enough about this message over those six months to realize that if I ever became a Christian, I could do nothing less than devote my entire life to spreading this message among mankind. Because if this is really the truth, if it's really the truth, then this is the greatest news ever announced. 
And so for me, Mark, my call to full-time Christian ministry was simultaneous with my conversion. Wow, what an amazing story. Can we thank the Lord for that story? Amen. God, God, what, what an amazing God we serve. Amen. <laughs> um, so you have this incredible come to Jesus time in your life. How did it affect your family? How did it affect the people around Ooh. you? Um, it was it's very difficult to share Christ with your parents, I find, because there's a difference in sort of authority there. And so it was very awkward for me. I didn't know how to explain to them what had happened to me. But I went to the pastor of the liberal church I was attending <laughs> and said, I want to be baptized. And he said, but Bill, you've already been baptized. And I said, oh, I know, but it didn't mean anything. I'm a Christian now. I want to, I want to be baptized. And so they baptized me publicly as a teenager in the church. Well, word of this got back to my parents that this had happened. I didn't tell them. And they wanted to know what had happened. And so I began to share then more fully with them about what had happened to me. And when I applied to Wheaton College to attend there, you had to write your personal testimony as part of your application. And my mother read that. And she said, Bill, I've read your application to Wheaton and she said I want you to know that if you want to go to Wheaton your father and I fully support you in that decision so they thought it was wonderful what had happened to me but I have to say for it wasn't for them you know they they uh, didn't see this as something they needed in their lives well I prayed for my parents for over 30 years Mark that they would come to Christ without any visible results and then one afternoon, we got a phone call from my mother, and she said, Bill, your dad says he's ready to receive Christ. What do we do? <laughs> wow. And wow. you could have knocked me over with a feather, uh, but I said, in the back of my book, The Existence of God and the Beginning of the Universe, there's a prayer that you can pray to give your life to Christ. Pray that prayer and invite Christ into your life and commit your lives to him. And she said, okay, we will. Sometime later, she called me back. She said, okay, we prayed the prayer. In fact, we, we prayed it twice just to make sure it sticks. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, very late in their lives, both of my parents did make this commitment to Christ. And it was a real lesson to me, Mark, to realize that even when you don't see God answering your prayers and and you don't see any visible results. You never know how God's left hand is working secretly and quietly to bring about uh, his goodwill. Uh, amen. And that's a word of encouragement, I think, to all of us who have people that are dear and important to us that we pray for. Yeah. Uh, to, to find this greater joy in life that comes from a, an unbroken relationship with God. Um, okay, so you decided to go to Wheaton. I did. Which is one of the most outstanding academic and spiritual Christian institutions uh, 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 where our own David Capes taught for a while. Um, oh. uh, but uh, what, what was your degree program? What were you oh. headed there to do? 
well, this is kind of odd. Uh, despite my love of theology and literature, uh, I majored in speech and communications because, you see, I was on the debate team. I had debated uh, on the scholastic level in high school for four years, and then at Wheaton joined the debate team to debate on the intercollegiate level for four years. Uh, for me, it was a kind of intellectual sport um, where I could represent my school competitively. And I spent more time researching the debate topic than I did on all of my classes combined. It, it was that dominating an influence. And so I thought I might as well major in speech and communication, though my real love lay with uh, Christian theology. So what year did you graduate from high school? High school was 67. Do you remember the debate topic your senior year? I remember some of the debate topics. One of them was the military assistance program should be significantly curtailed. Another was that executive authority needed to be significantly curtailed. This was the Vietnam era, yeah, remember, yeah, and so yeah. we were debating those subjects. These were all public policy questions that we debated. As I say, this wasn't in any way preparation for ministry or anything of that sort. It was just uh, a sport. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, did, uh, I, did, I did high school debate uh, uh, and I did college debate did as well. Did you? Yeah. Yes, yeah. so many of yeah. my friends on the debate circuit were going on to law school, yeah. especially for trial lawyers. It's yeah. great preparation. Well, we've got uh, our nephew Davis is here today. He's finishing law school. Davis debated for four years. Wow. Uh, our daughter Sarah is here. She's in law school. She debated for four years. And then my sweet wife and I met in debate. Wow. So now let's fast forward a little bit. You go through Wheaton, you get a degree. Um, you've got some pretty stout additional degrees beyond that yes. uh, degree. Tell us about your education. All right. Um, late in my Wheaton career, I discovered philosophy and realized how valuable this was for Christian doctrine and ministry. And so when I heard that Norm Geisler had pioneered a program in philosophy of religion at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to do an MA in philosophy of religion. So I went, we, by that time, Jan and I were married. We went to Trinity, and I did the MA in philosophy of religion. And then I followed that up with an MA in church history and the history of Christian thought which is so closely related. Um, and then as we were sitting around the dinner table one night at Trinity, uh, shortly before graduation, Jan says to me, well, uh, what would you like to do next? And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not really sure. And she said, well, if money were no object, what would you really like to do next? And I said, well, if money were no object, I guess I'd like to go to England and study under John Hick and do a doctoral degree on the cosmological argument. And so she said, let's do it. And so we wrote to Professor Hick, and he said, yes, I'd be happy to supervise a thesis on that topic. So it was just a matter of coming up with the money. Well, we didn't have any money. We were as poor as church mice. But we began to pray that God would provide for us a donor who would fund this study. And the Lord provided Hugh Anderson from Anderson Window Walls, and he funded personally 
my doctoral studies at the University of Birmingham. Three books came out of that study, including the Kalam Cosmological Argument, which I have since shared on university campuses in debates and speeches for decades now. Uh, and so we felt like God had just miraculously picked us up and transferred us to the University of Birmingham to do this study. Uh, that's just amazing. Now, in the midst of this, you've talked about Jan. You've told us uh, how important she's been in, in your life's work and, and all. Uh, how did you meet Jan? And yeah. how did you manage to win her over? <laughs> <laughs> that, yes, is a mystery. Um, after I graduated from Wheaton, or upon graduating from Wheaton, I, I thought, what, what should I do? I knew I did want to go on to seminary, but I, I heard a chapel speaker my senior year, John Guest, who was a musician with the Excursions, Christian rock band, and he said, you've been soaking up all this knowledge at Wheaton for four years. Why don't you take a couple of years out of your education and wring out the sponge and get involved in Christian ministry. And I thought, that sounds like a good idea. So what could I do? Well, the answer to me seemed obvious, Campus Crusade for Christ. So I joined the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ for two years. And when I went out to Arrowhead Springs for staff training, um, they assigned us to various staff teams. And I was assigned to Northern Illinois University. And as I was walking through the lobby of the hotel at Arrowhead Springs, I heard a, a girl say, I've been assigned to Northern Illinois University. And I turned around and I said, you're going to NIU, so am I. Hello, my name's Bill Craig. And it was Jan. And so we fell in love as she worked with the gals and I worked with the guys. And we were married uh, about a year and a half later on campus at NIU and then went on to seminary and doctoral education uh, together. And she has been the wind beneath my wings all these years. Oh, that's fantastic. I don't know if it would embarrass you, Jan, but would you stand up so people know who you are? Because they may want to come up to you and talk to you as well. Thank you for that. Um, uh, so you and Jan, you, you go over to England, you mm -hmm. get this degree, and, and how did you take that and move it into ministry? Where did you go from there? Well, um, while we were at Birmingham, we were nearing the end of my time, and uh, I didn't have any job prospects, teaching or professorship, come up. And so we didn't know what to do. And we were sitting around the dinner table in Birmingham, and Jan said to me, well... Honey, if money were no object, what would you really like to do next? And I said, well, I guess if money were no object, I'd like to go to Germany and study under Wolfhard Pollenberg on the resurrection of Jesus. Well, she said that just lit a fire under her. And the next day, unbeknownst to me, she went to the University, of Library, uh, University Library and began to research grants in aid to study at German universities. And when I came home then, she said, okay, here's your options. Uh, the one was the Deutsche Akademische Austauschdienst. The other was the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation. The Alexander von Humboldt Foundation is a foundation erected by the German government to bring foreign scientists 
and scholars in other fields to German laboratories and universities to do research. It's a kind of cultural politics to refurbish Germany's image after the war. Well, most of these men were scientists, but it said it was open to any field. So I proposed, as my research proposal, a study of the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus uh, in the field of theology. And we submitted that. Well, uh, sometimes I could believe God for this. We began to pray morning and night that he would provide this. And then other times I would think of this panel of 70 German scholars sitting around this table in Bonn, weighing these scientific proposals, and then coming to this one on the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection, and my heart would just sink. Well, uh, to make a long story short again, um, we got uh, a letter in the mail from the Humboldt Foundation. Um, and it was just one month before we were to, to leave where we were living. And, and it was in German. We couldn't read it. So we had to <laughs> run to a bookstore and get a, a German dictionary so we could translate the letter. And lo and behold, it says, the Humboldt Foundation is pleased to announce that you have been awarded a grant to study the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus under Wolfhard Pannenberg at the University of Munich. And so for the next two years, the German government paid me to study the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, wow. Wow. All right. And out of that research, again, came three books and an argument for the historicity of Jesus' resurrection that I still use on university campuses in debates and lectures. Wow. All right, so get us caught up time-wise. So you finish in Munich after two yeah. years there. What year would this have been? Um, I finished our residency there in 1980, mm -hmm. but the degree wasn't awarded until four years later because to get a German doctorate, you have to publish your right. doctoral dissertation, and that took a while. So it was uh, in 1980, Jan and I moved back to the States, and I began teaching at my alma mater, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Norm Geisler had moved to Dallas Theological Seminary, and he said, I want you to get Bill Craig as my replacement. And so I was hired then at Trinity for the next seven years. So um, you published your dissertation in 84. Mm -hmm. Was it in English or German? It was in English. In, in Germany, you can write your dissertation in either German, English, or Latin. And so I wrote mine in English. Uh, uh, the, the, the Germans, I'm reminded, I'm sure you know Peter Williams. Peter's yes. a dear friend. And Peter, I asked him one time, Peter's one of these multilinguist guys. And I asked him, I said, how many languages are you comfortable teaching about Jesus uh, in? And he said, well, if you'd asked me last year, I would have said English and French and German. Hmm. And I said, yeah. He said, but I was asked to do a two-night lecture on Jesus in Germany last year. And he said, uh, they said I could do it in English or German. And I said I would do it in German. 
And uh, after the first night of lecture and before the second, they recommended I switch to English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's difficult to really be fluent in another language. I yeah. mean, you can comprehend it, but to really speak fluently, it's, it's, it's very difficult. You've got to live in country, I think. Yeah. All right. You come back. Man, you're just living in the Midwest of the U.S. You come back yeah. to TEDS or Trinity Evangelical. Uh, uh, outside the Chicago area. Right. And then uh, you're there till the late 80s. Yes. And then yeah. what'd you do from there? What well, happened? Time out. Then? What did you teach there? What I was taught your area? philosophy of religion. Okay. Um, a field that probably many folks aren't familiar with. Why don't you explain it? It would include things like the religious philosophizing of various figures down through history, like. Aristotle and Aquinas and Hume and Kant and contemporary uh, Christian philosophers. What do philosophers say about God and the soul and things of that sort? And over the last 70 years or so, there has been a renaissance of Christian philosophy in the Anglo-American world. So that today, some of the most prominent and respected philosophers at our most prestigious universities are Bible-believing, outspoken Christians. And so I am privileged to be living at a time uh, during which there is this renaissance of Christian philosophy going on. And that was what I taught then uh, at Trinity for seven years. Unfortunately, at the end of that time, the dean and the president of the seminary decided that philosophy of religion was not really important for a divinity school education. Um, they thought that it was largely irrelevant, and therefore they decided to close the department without any faculty consultation. And so I and my colleague found ourselves out of a job. And uh, somewhat earlier than that, while we were in Europe, we had been approached by Greater Europe Mission and Campus Crusade for Christ of Europe, which was called Agape Europe, about coming on staff full-time with them. And so when they closed the department at Trinity, I said to Jan, all right, this is a sign from the Lord, we're going back to Europe. And so we joined the staff of Agape Europe. For the next year, I taught at Westmont College, and we raised our support then to go on staff with Crusade in Europe. And that was a story in itself. We were scheduled to leave um, in one month, and we still hadn't managed to get our full support. We still were $300 per month short. And I got a call from one of the churches that had interviewed me and decided not to support us. And they said, we've changed our mind. We do want to support you after all. And I said, really? How much? And they said, $300 a month. <laughs> so it was just confirmation once again. You know, the Lord in our lives, as we've stepped out boldly for him, he has supplied the means all along the way to do what we've had it in our hearts to do and, and to fulfill that vision. So we did moved back to Europe. We lived in Brussels, Belgium for seven years. I spoke on European university campuses uh, 
all around the continent and in Eastern Europe and the old Soviet Union as well, which was quite an education, believe me. Uh, and, and so that was where we were for seven years. Our children by that time were born, and they went to um, Belgian school, uh, were educated in French and in Flemish for their primary languages, and then spoke English at home, uh, and in that way became trilingual. Wow, tell us about your children. Uh, Our first child is named Charity Joy, um, and she was born in 82, and just a perfect child, uh, an absolute delight. Um, we and, got that the fifth time around, right, Sarah? Well, <laughs> we were very fortunate to get it the first time, and that encouraged us then to have a second child, our son John, who was, you know, just rambunctious and headstrong and so forth. And Jan often said, if we had had John first, we would have had one child. <laughs> but there's a strength of character in sure. him that God can use. And so both of these children are grown and married today. They are gloriously independent. They didn't live with mom and dad. They didn't mooch off of us. They went out and pursued independent careers. Uh, John is an executive with Facebook. Charity works for a cyber company. Um, and they are both walking with the Lord and regularly attending church and involved in uh, small groups. So we're, we're very, very pleased with Wonderful. that. That's great. All right. Now, you are over there. You're speaking at these various universities in various settings. Uh, you were in... in Eastern Bloc countries uh, mm-hmm. uh, at, on, on multiple occasions. I, I don't know because I haven't asked you this before, but I know that uh, we've got in the fall coming, be looking forward to uh, Dr. John Lennox coming and, and mm-hmm. I'll be interviewing him in class. And he's got yeah. some incredible stories of, of, of working uh, in Russia in, in, actually he was translating mathematics textbooks, but it was a ministry chance. And the stories are pretty cool. Do you have any incredible stories during that time where, where uh, that it's a good story worth telling, either in, in the Eastern Bloc yeah. or in Europe itself, but in these settings where you're out there? Well, just one comes to mind. Shortly after the collapse of the wall, we were in uh, Moscow, um, speaking at Moscow State University, and, and I was there with Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe. And we had a huge audience of Russian students there. Uh, And at one point in Hugh's talk, he said, I have here my testimony of how I came to Christ and came to know him, and it's written up, and we'll just put some copies of this down here on the table in the front, and you can get one afterwards if you want. And he continued to speak. Well, what happened was, one person got up and came forward and took one of these papers, then another, and then another. And then the whole audience just dissolved, and they all rushed forward, grabbing and <laughs> snatching at this thing. They were so eager to hear about Christ and about how he came to know him. And then they all retired back to their seats and listened carefully for the rest of it. And one of the interesting things about these Russian audiences is that when they have questions, 
they write it on a little scrap of paper, and then they pass it to the person in the row in front of them who passes it then forward. And so as you speak, you see this avalanche of paper coming <laughs> through the aisles toward the front, and then they're deposited on the stage in front of you to answer. So it was marvelous, the spiritual hunger that we saw shortly after the collapse of the wall. Wow. Okay, thank you for that. So you, you spend that seven years ministering uh, uh, in that forum. Uh, mm -hmm. What caused you to leave that? Well, our children, uh, as I say, attended Belgian schools, and they were about 11 years of age at that point. And we had talked to enough missionaries to know if they stayed longer as teenagers, they would become Belgian. And we didn't want that to happen. We wanted Charity and John to retain their American sense of identity. In contrast to a socialist society like Europe, Americans have this sense of individualism that uh, anybody like Abraham Lincoln born in a log cabin can grow up and be president. And that is a mentality that is utterly foreign to this stratified socialistic society. If you're not one of the elites, you're not going to do that. And we wanted Charity and John to have this American can-do uh, individualistic attitude. And so we thought we need to move back to the States while they're still young enough that they can uh, retain their American identity but keep their, their languages that they've learned. And so we began to explore where to move to, and to make a long story short, we settled on Atlanta, Georgia. And so in 1994, we returned to the States, to Georgia, uh, and continued the same ministry based in the States that we had had in Brussels. Okay. At some point, you moved from that ministry into, back into academia, uh, sort of, kind of, well, or not, not really? really. What you see, Help us understand. I needed to have an academic affiliation Okay. so that when I go on to a university campus, I'm not introduced as a campus crusader, which would have no credibility. So while we were in Brussels, I was a visiting scholar at the University of Louvain okay. in Belgium, and that is how I would be introduced. So when I came back to the States in 94, J.P. Moreland at Talbot School of Theology approached me and said, Bill, we'd like you to hire you in our philosophy department here. And I said, no, J.P., I, I don't want to be in full-time teaching anymore. I, I love this itinerant ministry. And he said, well, then how about just teaching one class a year for us, a kind of short-term, two-week course? And I said, yes, that sounds great. And so that gave me then an academic affiliation but without the commitments of a full-time faculty member to faculty meetings and committee assignments and, and all of the rest of that sort of thing. And so um, since 94, I, I've been affiliated with Talbot and then more recently with Houston Baptist University. Fantastic. All right, now where do you make home? Where, where is Atlanta home? is our home. It's we moved home. there in 94. We've been in the same house. We absolutely love it. That decision to move to Atlanta was one of the best decisions we ever made. And Charity and John, do they live anywhere near you? Do they? Sadly, no. We're very triangulated. Charity and her husband are up in Minneapolis, and John and his wife are in Austin, Texas. Wow. So 
we rarely see each other, uh, only once or twice a year at holidays, um, but thanks to FaceTime, at least, we're able to, to keep in touch. Do you have any grandchildren? Yes. Charity and Nick have a little boy named Oliver, to whom my book, In Quest of the Historical Adam, is dedicated. Um, if we just have time for a short Please. story. Yes. Um, my study of Neanderthals led me to the question of whether Neanderthals were capable of speech. Did they have language? And some have said that their vocal cavity was not sufficient to form the so-called quantal vowels, like ah, e, and oo. Uh, and so they would have the capacity of speech that would be similar to uh, a three to eight-year-old. Well, that was the same age as little Oliver. And so I said, Ollie, one day on the phone, would you say your ABCs for me? And so he says, A, B, C, D, E, F. And his quantal vowels were perfect. He could say E and D and B and U and W. And so I dedicated the book to Oliver and said, who, to Oliver, our grandson, whose quantal vowels would be the envy of any Neanderthal. <laughs> The publisher to Erdman said it was the best book dedication he'd ever read. Uh, that's, that's, and be then our, uh, John and Christine have uh, two beautiful little children uh, named Parker, a girl, and uh, James, a little boy. Uh, and they are just um, a beautiful family. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, um, um, now I want to transition. We've got, we've got a, a little bit of time left. Uh, um, I want to transition and talk about how you've cultivated your life with God. And so uh, I, I know that you were talking about how you learned that there is a relationship beyond just mm. religion. Yeah. Um, how do you keep, I, I, can I be bold and ask how old you are? Well, I'm over 70 now. That's fair enough. All right, how in, in those seven plus decades, Yeah. How have you managed to keep vibrant and alive the relationship you have with God? Um, Other than the fact that Jan keeps you on the straight and narrow. Yeah, right. You know, that, I, that's not to be underestimated. No, it's not. Jan travels with me, as you see. She's on this trip. A lot of Christian men don't travel with their wives, and they get into trouble. Uh, and so I have appreciated the way she has been my companion, and that's not to be underestimated. No, it's not. But I'm a churchman. I believe in the local church and its ministries and the need of being involved in the local church. And so I serve in our local church as a Sunday school teacher, like you. I teach every Sunday, and um, I make it a real emphasis, despite my travels, to try to be there as many Sundays as I can to be ministering to the folks in our local body of believers at Johnson Ferry Baptist Church. Uh, so that's important. I think being involved in meaningful worship with other brothers and sisters is one of the most important things that a person can do. And then to maintain your own devotional life with God, to be involved daily in prayer uh, and in Bible study. I, I think is important as well. And so I try to maintain those disciplines too. And then to be involved in ministry, to be ready to share Christ with others when you have the opportunity. 
I remember when I was um, studying to get my degree that one of the, well, he was the head of the Bible department. His name was Batsel Barrett Baxter, and he pulled me aside one day, and he said, Mark, how many hours a day are you spending translating the, the Hebrew or the Greek uh, uh, or preparing for your Bible classes? And I said, you know, basically 10 hours a day. And, and he, said, uh, he said, don't ever, ever let the work you're doing like that take the place of your devotional time with God. Yeah. That's work you're doing. Mm-hmm. You make sure you have devotional time, that relationship time. And yeah. that's stuck in my head. And I echoed, and that echoed when you just gave that same counsel and advice here. And yeah. uh, thank God for men like you and women yeah. like Jan and Becky and others who, who really help us with that. Um, so normally you're teaching a, a Sunday school or a life group. What are you teaching on right now? I'm teaching on the attributes of God. Are you for him or against him? <laughs> uh, well, no, that's, that's not a dumb question. I'm for some of them, but I'm against others. Yeah. Um, for example, I don't believe in the strong doctrine of divine simplicity, which says that either God has no properties or that all of God's properties are the same property or that God's essence is just his existence. These are very highfalutin metaphysical notions that I don't think are biblical at all. Similarly, with regard to divine eternity, as I shared in the lecture last night, I I don't take the view that God is timeless, though that is a classical position. I think that God does exist in time, at least since the moment of creation. Uh, My studied view is that God is timeless, existing alone without creation, but that the decision to create a temporal world is a decision on his part to take on a temporal mode of existence and to be temporally related to us. So there's a lot to be talked about with regard to the attributes of God, like God's aseity, his necessity, his eternity, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his, uh, uh, his goodness, and so forth. And so this is what we're going through with the class. We first look at the biblical data concerning any attribute, and then we reflect systematically on it to see how it's best understood. Mm. Um, Are your classes available on the internet? Yes, yes. The whole class has been filmed. We're actually going through it now through the curriculum a fourth time, and so the entire third series is on our website, Defenders Series 3, beginning with the doctrine of Scripture through the doctrine of the last things. And you can either watch the videos of the class that were taken, it's all recorded, or, which I think is easier, you can read the transcripts of the class. Um, So either way is available on the website, reasonablefaith.org. Reasonablefaith.org. All right. Now, uh, let's go back to your devotional life for a moment. Um, are you musical at all? No. <laughs> the only thing I can play is the radio. Um, I love music. I love to sing. I, I love the great hymns of the uh-huh. church. That was uh, something that Wheaton taught me. Every day in chapel, we would sing these grand hymns of the church. So what are some of your favorite hymns? Or... And Can It Be? by Charles Wesley. I remember the first time I heard that in chapel at Wheaton, and they have this massive, huge 
pipe organ in the Edmund Chapel. And the students who are at the music conservatory then play in chapel. And to sing, and can it be, to this thundering organ is just one of the most inspiring experiences that one can have. So that would be one of the, the favorites. Ah, that's good. Now, are any, is Jan or any of your family musical? Or? Jan is. No? She was in orchestra and played the bassoon and the flute uh, and the trombone and the piano, so she was, and can sing, so she was, she's very musical. So she, she, take, she, she takes what you needed and, and, and supplies it there. Yeah, she compliments, compliments my you. ability. The yin and the yang. Uh, yeah, right, <laughs> but at least I appreciate music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, what, what do you want to accomplish in the future? Wait, let me say it this way. If money were no object, <laughs> <laughs> What, what, it, what would you choose to have on the road in front of you, assuming God was consulting yeah, you on that? Thank you, Mark. Two things. Number one, we want to found an academic center offering a curriculum of courses in Christian philosophy, theology, and apologetics based on my work. And we want this academic center to be affiliated with an established, accredited Christian university or seminary so that students taking these classes will get credit for a degree from that institution. And that's one of the things we're working on right now at Reasonable Faith. It's a very slow and yeah. difficult thing to negotiate. Yeah. The other thing is that I have begun writing a systematic philosophical theology. This has never been attempted before. There are lots of systematic theologies, but they are typically weak in the philosophical component. And so I am attempting to write a systematic theology that emphasizes in each topic it treats the philosophical issues that come up in the articulation and the defense of that particular doctrine, whether it be doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of faith, doctrine of God or whatever. And I have now completed volume one of this systematic philosophical theology. I've sent it off to Cambridge University Press, and they're sending it out for peer review. Uh, and meanwhile, I've got started on volume two. Wow. So how, how do you typically spend a day? What's a day in the life of Billy Craig? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, after devotions and exercise and and you're stout about exercising you're like yeah, you're every day if i may just yeah. say i have you see mark a neuromuscular syndrome that okay. causes atrophy progressively in the extremities and so i am fighting against my own body to maintain muscle tone and quality and so i am arduous about exercising five days a week to try to stay in good shape um, and so after doing that and then breakfasting with Jan, then I'll go downstairs and I'll begin to study. And I will work on the most difficult material, reading or writing, until about 12.30. And then I'll come upstairs and Jan will have a hot lunch prepared for me uh, and we'll eat together. Uh, and then I'll lie down for a, a nap. Uh, and then I'll go down and work the remainder of the day until six o'clock and usually about four or five o'clock when my brain is fried that's when i'll first look at my email 
and kind of wrap up the day doing that and, and not allow that to steal time for my study time. And then in the evening, Jan and I spend it together. Uh, in seminary, I made the pledge to her that I would not study during evenings and on weekends, but would spend that time with her, and that is something that we continue to do. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, what, what is... What, what are some of your favorite things to do together then? What kind of stuff? We enjoy dining out a yeah. lot. Uh, we enjoy very much good food. And um, we enjoy traveling to interesting Houston. and exotic places. Yeah, yeah like Houston. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, you know, actually, there would be a lot of interesting things to see and do here if we had time. But yeah. we've taken wonderful trips to places like Turkey uh, and London and China and Tunisia um, that have been really wonderful experiences together and and so we've enjoyed that. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, do you do you keep up with modern culture? Watch TV? Are you a big fan of rap music? Uh, anything? <laughs> In a word, no. Uh, I honestly think, Mark, that anybody, any Christian who does not feel alienated from contemporary American culture isn't walking with the Lord. Because our culture has become so debased, so profane, so vulgar, um, that I don't see how any Christian can feel comfortable in our American culture. Jan and I will sometimes try to watch a movie on television at night, you know, on Netflix or something, and the F word is just thrown every two minutes in these films. They, they just can't get away from it. It's so vulgar. Uh, and it's just, it, it's offensive, frankly. So I, I, uh, I don't make any effort to try to keep up with contemporary American culture. I, 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 um, I try to keep abreast of current developments in my field, of course, but not with pop culture. What about current events? Uh, oh, the Ukraine, yes. things like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Now, that, that's, keep... that's not culture. Right. No, Absolutely. I, I'm shifting gears I now. Christians must be abreast of current events and politically involved, uh, if not publicly. As a public spokesman for Christ, I cannot take political stances, lest it look like God is aligned with one political party. But privately, we are very ardently involved uh, and opinionated politically, and, and uh, we are praying for our political and military leaders that they will show backbone and stand up to Russia in this evil, uh, tyrannical invasion of the Ukraine. We're praying for uh, the leaders of the Ukraine that they would be strong and courageous, and especially for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, that their faith would not fail but would persevere amidst tremendous suffering. We have reasonable faith volunteers in the Ukraine, and we're praying for them that, that they would be strong in the midst of persecution and suffering. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.